if you're new, a special welcome to you today. We have been in a series, it's, we've been going for about a month and a half or so, you'll see it on the screen there, Breaking the Chains of Family Baggage. It, it's a hard, it's been a hard series for some of you out there. Um, the, the challenge as we look at generational sin and dysfunction, um, it's not necessarily an easy topic. But I want to put on the screen really a key passage where it really, I think, is very pointed of the impact of it. And look how it goes from Exodus chapter 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Our families, our families of origin, mark us for many good things, but they also mark us for ill as well. But here's where I, I got to say this. Patterns that have been put in place in families can be broken. The sins of the fathers and the mothers do not have to be repeated. Let me put another key text here of our series on the screen. Hebrews 12. Look at what it says there. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, and there's our part, also lay aside every weight See, much of the family baggage stuff that we, we carry around and it impacts us even in our relationships, that's the weight. It might be from generations before us. And it can cause even sin, which king clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Today, We've got to start a hard turn. And it's how do we move away from it? How do we break the chains? And how do we set aside the weight of this stuff? Now, today, I, I think is probably the hardest step. Um, let me put a word on the screen. This is what today is about. Issue of forgiveness. This word, I don't know if you realize, it elicits fear in some people. It pushes some people to even emotionally shut down, has that potential. It's a weighty word. And I suspect that there's people in here today who've had to figure out what it means to lift and to deal with this word. There was a book I came across in a blog, and I got an illustration out of it. It was uh, Forgiving Our Fathers and Mothers by Leslie Fields. It was a counselor. She wrote this book about the sexual abuse that was a part of her family. And she wrote about a man named William who had a mother who was a raging person, full of anger. Uh, the mom was harsh, deeply unloving. And he asked about forgiving her in this book. And this is what his reply was when, would you want to forgive your mom? And his, here's what he said. I don't have it on the screen. I'll just read it to you. I know we're called to forgive. 
but I guess I never thought of forgiveness toward her. She is who she is, and I don't care. My father says she changed right after I was born. No one knows why or how she changed, but I don't care how or why. She just is the way she is. So I don't care about forgiving my mom. I just don't care. And that attitude might not be good, but that's where I am right now. I'm out of the house, married now. I hardly see her anymore. I'm never going to expect anything from her. It doesn't hurt anymore, so I don't need to forgive her. I'm just going to live in the here and the now, and I'm just going to try and forget what happened in the past. Is that where some of you are at here today? Uh, a book that I recommend called Breaking the Cycle of Hurtful Family Relationships. Uh, we just sold out after the first service. But in there it gives a list, and I want to put the list on the screen, as to why people don't think that they, can, they should forgive. And, and it's this, the person has never asked for forgiveness, that first one. They've never come to me. Or this, the offense was too great. Or the person doesn't accept responsibility. I simply don't like this person. The person committed the offense too many times. The person is not truly sorry. Someone has to punish this person. The person deliberately did it. Something keeps me from forgiving. If I forgive, I will have to treat the offender well. I will forgive, but I will not ever forget. See, the fact is that some people want to feel anger and resentment and bitterness because that's what they think the other person deserves. See, you look at forgiveness and they go, it's a get-out-of-jail card. It's letting them off the hook. Now, now let me give you maybe a summary of those beliefs here. Here's the bottom line. I, I think it is this way. Forgiveness just doesn't seem fair. That's what we believe. And I don't know if we realize it, but the flesh, the part that wants independence and wants to love ourselves, we resist moving toward forgiveness. There's a, a, an illustration. Maybe there's a book that you read from a, a lady by the name of Corey Tenboom. Anybody have anybody read that book? A few number of you have. Corey Tenboom and her family, I don't know if you realize it, secretly housed Jews in their homes outside of Amsterdam during World War II. And they were discovered. And Corey and her sister Betsy were sent to a German concentration death camp. It was Ravensbrück. And Corey would watch as many people were put to death, including her sister. And Corey was one of the survivors. Corey was a Christ follower, and after the war, she returned back to Germany to declare the grace of Christ. And the goal was to proclaim the message that, that God forgives people. And she believed that it was a message that they needed to hear in their bitterness in this war-torn land. And let me just quote from her what she said. When we confess our sins, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. God then places a sign out that says, no fishing allowed. It's good. 
A story goes on, though, to tell how she was speaking at a church in Munich, Germany. And she, after, the, after that speaking engagement, she began to greet the people, and the people were lined up that had heard her on this issue of, of forgiveness. And, and this line is, all of a sudden, she looks up in this line, and her countenance just changed dramatically. She saw a face, a face that she knew, and he was dressed differently than she had recognized from before. But she saw a man where she went back in time and said he should be wearing a soldier's uniform and a visored cap. And these emotions as she looked at that man came flooding over her. And mentally she was almost transplanted back to this big room with harsh overhead lights and there was piles of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor and where she had been forced to walk naked past this man, this guard at Ravensbrook. And he was one of the cruelest guards in the camp. And he walked up. And he stuck his hand out and said, fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And at that moment, she couldn't raise her hand. Now, he didn't remember her. She remembered him. Face to face with one of the captors that this would have made her blood freeze. And he went up to her and he mentioned, I heard that you say about Ravensbrook in your talk. And he goes, I was a guard there. And since then, I've become a Christian. And I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there. But I would like to hear this from your lips as well. Farline, will you forgive me? And at that point, it reads that things flooded in her mind. Reasons to not forgive. And Corey wrote that she believed that she could not give this man forgiveness. Her sister had died. And she said thoughts like this. Does he think that he can erase this long, terrible death simply by asking? It was too much to forgive. Way too much to ask. See, for her at that moment, forgiveness wasn't fair. But isn't that the way that we can feel toward people that have hurt us? Including our parents? Now, I understand this intellectually. We know that forgiveness is a good thing. That it's the right thing. But it, until we actually have to figure it out. It comes, it becomes a part of our lives, then it's more difficult. Then it changes. Now, I got to say a couple other nuances to this. What do we do with anger? Now, I would say this anger is not always wrong. There is such a thing as righteous anger, and anger actually can be used in healing. I see this in some of the Psalms. We don't really catch it, the flavor, but I think there's times where David was really quite angry, even with God, because of what happened. Romans 9, though, what do you do with that? 
All things work together for good if you're a Christ follower. Here's what I would say. Sometimes that God even uses the hurt and the pain to help us throw off the weight and the sin that clings so closely. Now, I, I don't want to dismiss the realities of the wrong. That happened. That takes place. But this idea that bitterness and resentment and revenge has to be dealt with. Because if it gets cemented into the soul, if it stays with us, do we realize that the sin then becomes a primary factor in actually creating generational sin? Father, mother, children, grandchildren. It stays with us. It starts new patterns with people in our lives. But forgiveness is the first critical step in breaking free, and it's a door that has to get thrown open. And, and some might, maybe even here today, you're going, but Ken, you don't know my situation. It's not fair. See, how do you forgive someone who has caused you great pain? And here's the reality for some of us, for some people in here, and I know people where it was done at an age where you were vulnerable, children. But here's where we got to start. I got to remind you of this. Forgiveness is a process. It's not a one-time event. It's not simple. And those who claim it to be simple, I don't think they have a clue. And it's complicated. It's weighty. I read a whole bunch on different authors on forgiveness. They're just looking around online, and there's a lot out there, and realizing that there's actually some disagreement in, with people that are even who call themselves followers of Christ. And as they look at the scriptures, um, there's some challenges to what they say. I recognize that, and I learned some things as a result of the reading I did. But I, I chose to get some information by a couple authors, Augsburger and White. But I wanna, where I want to head today is I want to talk about five phases of forgiveness. Five pieces to it for us here to begin that process. And again, it is a process, okay? So if you're following along in the sermon notes, I said this. Phase one, begin to build an attitude of love is the first step in forgiveness. Now let me explain. This kind of love is not a gooey love. It is a decision-based love. But love can begin by working to see the other person the way that God sees them. See, as we look at another person, even though they've offended us, we have to realize that God looks at that person and says this, they have value, they have worth. We need to rediscover the humanity of the people who have hurt us. And without a deliberate effort to see the other person in that sense, if we don't do it, we're going to get stuck. But it comes back to a question. What does God, how does God see this person that wounded us? It's such an important question. See, God understands. He knows their sin. But even though they're a sinner, God looks at that person and says, they have worth 
in my eyes. That's what he says. They've been made in my image. See, do we remember that? Now, does this diminish the wrong that they did? I go, no. But it begins where we begin to understand they are human. And God looks at them in that light as well. And we are called to begin the process to figure out how to love them. Look at 1 John 4. This is from the message here. Very pointed. If anyone boasts, I love God, and goes right on hating his brother or sister, thinking nothing of it, he is a liar. If he won't love the person he can see, how can he love the God he can't see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. See, if such love seems beyond us, impossible, can I remind you, you actually have been pulling this off for somebody. Do you realize that? Because there's someone who has caused you great pain Countless mistakes and failures. Someone who's hurt many people over the years. And they've done many bad things that deserve judgment. And yet yet somehow, time after time after time, you have found yourself that you can separate the actions and offer some type of forgiveness, really, to the vast majority of those actions. Do you know who I'm talking about? Yourself. Isn't that true? See, we know we've hurt people, and we forgive ourselves. Where do we start? I think it's this. We need to begin to pray. We need to pray that God would give us the eyes of Jesus, that when we look at those people that have hurt us, that we can say, they are made in the image of God. They are of worth and value to God. God, that is the starting point for us in order to make steps toward loving people. But there's another phase as well. In your notes, I said it this way. Start the process of letting go of the past. Now, we're going to deal with this more over the next couple of weeks. But know this. What happened in the past happened in the past. It's in the past. And we have a choice to make about the past. One must begin to work to leave it there. Is it just a decision? The answer is no, it's work. But we don't want to continually bring it into the present. So you understand when we keep bringing the past into the now, we keep reliving it. We rehearse it. We keep it fresh. We keep it alive. And if we say that we can never choose differently, at that point, we're sucked into becoming victims. And we are chained to it. And the Holy Spirit, then, we, then we're, what we're saying is that the Holy Spirit has not enough power to help me leave the past in the past. See, there's nothing that can be done. If, that, if we believe that's true, I think this, we're choosing that decision. How do you, what do we do? Let me put up Proverbs chapter 19 on the screen. Look at what it says here. A man's wisdom 
gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. A, a great proverb, and it applies here. What does this mean? It doesn't say that we ignore it, that it didn't happen. We're not denying it. What does it mean to look past? Now, let me illustrate it this way. Some of you, if you're in the back and you're shorter statue, when we sing songs and you, you, know, you stand up and sometimes you'll get somebody really tall, like Craig, for example, in front of you, and you can't see the screen. Do you focus on the back of that big person and say, ah, you growl at them? Don't you do this. You look past them. You step aside and you change your view. See, that's what this proverb is saying, is that we look beyond them. We look to the future. And all of a sudden, we can stop making it a daily thing. We stop bringing it into the present. But prayer, folks, is a part of this process. And we have to pray that the Holy Spirit would give us the reality and the power to look past what do we look at. Here's what we need to pray. God, would you help me see what's noble, what's right, what's pure? God, would you help me look at the kingdom of heaven? Would you help me be used today in the kingdom of God and for your glory today? Do you see how we're looking past then that event? We're not focusing on right on the event every day. Now, I got to add another very subtle point here. When I think of the generational stuff that's gone on in, in my family and with me and with, with generations beyond us, I, I realize this. Many times parents do things, they never intentionally did it. Now, my dad was not a harsh, mean man. My dad was emotionally disengaged. He was passive beyond passive. Really didn't have a relationship with him. But do I believe that one day he was walking around and said, you know, I think today I'm going to choose passivity. And I'm just going to emotionally disengage with my kids so that it will impact their kids. Did he do that? You go, no. No. See, your disappointment with who they weren't is not the same as having a cruel intent towards somebody. Two different categories. And here's one of the questions. Have you ever taken the time to reflect on how your parents parented? Or even how they were parented? Have you ever gone that far? It makes a difference in helping them see that there's a humanity, that God is working in them. They're not, you know, God, they had experiences that we can't understand. Matter of fact, let me put a question on the screen for you. If this is real possible. Were your parents, were they actually capable of being good parents? What if they weren't? See, the fact may exist that generational sin was actually washing over my dad. And I think that was the case. 
passivity with his dad. Uh, let, let me throw a side note here. Just an observation over the years. Isn't it, isn't it amazing that people enter into a marriage or choose to have kids assuming that they're going to be a wonderful husband and wife, assuming that they're going to be a great mom and dad, just from the fact, for example, in marriages, we stand up and say, I do. Now I'm going to be a great spouse just by saying, I do. No work at it, just deciding it. We can procreate a kid. I'm going to be a wonderful parent just because I can have kids. And you go, no. No. I assumed both those things. My premarital was 30 minutes long and a blessing. We never talked about baggage. Do you realize it takes four years of education to become a teacher? To work in a school and work with kids? And we just assume that having kids, we're good to go. Points to some things in our lives that we need to pursue. Take a hard look at your parents and the way they were parented. You might need to talk even to some of their siblings. If you can't have a conversation, maybe your mom and dad have passed away in order to understand your, your family. You might need to ask, go to other relatives and just ask the question, what was their family like? You know, we we'll begin to see the humanity in our parents. You know, I, I look at my dad and realize he missed out on so much as a father because he was incapable of engaging the kids emotionally. And I don't think anybody ever tried to come alongside of him and walk with him or even identify the baggage that, that he brought into the relationship and, to, and started flowing over the kids. Now, it's not an excuse it's the beginning to give them grace. See, we are called to overlook with grace because grace is, has overlooked us and what we've done. But there's a third phase here today as well. Uh, I put it in your notes this way. Begin to make room for the reconstruction of the relationship. This one is the most difficult step to take here. See, oftentimes when somebody hurts us, we don't want to make room for reconstruction. We really don't want to forgive and restore. We would rather just forgive, dismiss it, forgive, reject them, forgive and end the relationship. That's the easy way out. But that's not what the scriptures teach. Take a look at what Paul wrote here, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11. Finally, brothers and sisters, this is written to a dysfunctional church. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. See, to be willing to restore, it's not easy. I can't sugarcoat that. So easy, no. No. Clean and neat? No. 
Risky? Yes. Courage? Does it take courage? Yes. So to open our hearts to take a place at some level, what do we have to do? I think it's this. Okay, God, I'm going to begin to trust you. God, would you walk this journey with me? I need your power. Folks, we can't take these steps without the power of Christ working in us. You can forgive someone, and you can begin actually to begin welcoming that back into the community that you interact with. Now, hear this closely. i, I got to put some nuances to it. It does not mean that you're necessarily always welcoming them, them back into your intimate circle, especially when you think of parents or people that have wronged you in that sense. Uh, at, at times, from a generational family dynamic, sometimes you have to keep people out for a while. Now, now here's where i, I got to go down a side alley that really fits here, and it's critical in this phase. Let me put it on the screen. I have it in your notes there, a connected issue. Forgiveness does not mean that one should automatically trust them. Forgiveness and trust are two separate entities. Forgiveness, though, is also connected, and trust is, to the idea of repentance. Folks, the fruit of repentance takes time. Repentance is more than just saying, I'm sorry. I understand that word repentance is there's walking in a new direction. There's new movement taking place, new behaviors, new attitudes. And you still not sure if they're repentant. I get that. But you don't necessarily have to trust them if you don't see the fruit of their repentance. And again, repentance is a process. See, trust and forgiving are two separate things. I think of my kids. Did I always trust my kids? No. You know, they'd play close to the street. You trust them if they're real young. No. Do you love them? Yes. And at times, you may not trust somebody. And you go, that's okay. That's okay. See, if, if part of the issue was abusive behavior, and if abusive patterns still are existing to some extent, you know, there's not going to be no trust. But without true repentance, it's going to block people from moving toward the process. I acknowledge that. The other person's behavior still can block it. But what, what our attitude at that point is, do we just ignore them or do we say, God, I am going to wait with open hands and I'm going to keep praying for them. I'm going to keep loving them. I'm going to keep giving them respect, not attacking them. I'm just going to pray, God, that you will begin the process where they will be moving toward fuller and fuller repentance. And I acknowledge this. There are people that may never move toward repentance. And it might be part of your families. Matter of fact, let me show you a text in this. 2 Timothy. This is in the New Living Translation. 
There are people who will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and have no interest in what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless. You must stay away from the people like that. See, there are people who are stuck, mired, cemented in their sin. And it's appropriate then at that point to put a boundary on those relationships. Are we still called to forgive, though? The answer is yes. Are we still called to pray for them? The answer is yes. And we must still remain open if God works for reconstruction of the relationship. Let me go to a fourth phase. I said it this way. Begin to make room for a new future. See, it's about being open to the relationship of going in a new place, in new ways. See, really, you can't begin to love, you you can't begin to release the past, you can't begin to reconstruct the relationship and not make room for something new, a new direction. And it can only be done if we struggle with getting rid of the weight For us, we need to run to Jesus because he has to give us the power to do this. But it also requires great wisdom to be thinking beyond to something even new. How to love them well. Matter of fact, I want to put a verse. I use this in counseling. We're working with people all the time. Philippians 1.9. It is such a powerful prayer. I hope you have it underlined in your Bibles and come back to it. And look at what it reads. And this is my prayer that your love toward other people may abound more and more, it's just with knowledge, you catch that? And all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless, you catch that? The motives are right for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. We need spiritual wisdom to actually even think through and go, what kind of a new place can we go to? And God can provide that. But last, one final phase here. Phase five. We move toward affirming the relationship. This is kind of the pinnacle of this process. See, the possibility that forgiveness can end in a positive way, but even it goes farther where you actually can have joy and celebrate the relationship. We need to leave room that it can go to this kind of a place. See, again, this process, we get stuck at maybe two or three, phase two or three, but we're going to remind you that there's a potential of something even far better where we can come to a place where we can celebrate and have joy over the rebuilt relationship. But to do it, walk toward Christ, our palms up, admitting that we need the work of God in our lives. And I'm going to say this, it may take years to get to this place. Look at Psalm 92. It's really a proverb. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the work of your hands, I sing for joy. So when we begin to see God working, 
the result might be a place where we can actually go with joy and celebration in rebuilding a relationship. Now, is it easy? No. Is it a process? Yes. Does it take time? Yes. I remember working with a marriage down at Lakewood. Um, an affair had taken place. Um, she had forgiven her husband. And he had to travel for his work, and the affair had taken place at an, in another community. And when he had to travel back to that community, she would have these emotional outbursts, these flashbacks. And every time it happened, she began to understand that she had to take these thoughts captive. And just for a brief moment, she acknowledged that the wounds were reopened for a short period of time. But she also began to realize that God would heal them up quickly. She didn't linger on them. She was learning to trust step by step and learning to trust her husband step by step. And understand, when, when that kind of a crisis comes into a marriage relationship, that it can take somewhere four to five years before trust is, be, is, is rebuilt. Four to five years. Sometimes I don't even want to tell couples that, but it's true. But it can happen. The truth also exists that if we don't, begin to take steps and forgive. We will become permanently broken with resentment and bitterness. It's going to get cemented. It's going to shape who we are, how we feel, how we react to others. It will become a trademark and it influence it. It seeps out in, our, in other relationships, in other ways. It can become the sin that washes over to our children and their children. It just becomes a new generational sin. We've got to start the process. Now, I never finished the story of Corey Tenboom. I didn't tell you how it ended. Um, to give the ending to that, she stared at this hand that the, the guard had held up to her. And the Holy Spirit reminded her at that moment that forgiveness wasn't just an, an emotional thing. It was also an act of the will. And that it could function even when the temperature, her temperature, you know, the, the emotions were ice for her. And she reminded herself that Jesus died for this man. She began to see the humanity in this man. And then she prayed, Jesus, I can forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And she thought at that moment that, you know what, I can force my hand up and I could do it. And she did that and she prayed, God, will you supply the feelings when I do that? But with no positive emotions, it says that her hand went up and she thrust it out to his hand. And he grabbed it, and they began to shake each other's hand. And, she, and it writes that there's a, something happened at that moment. In her book, it says that 
there was like an electricity that started at her shoulder and it went down through her, her hand into the other guy's hand and this whole flood of emotions came over her and there was actually a, a warmth that took place. And it actually brought her to tears at that point. And she cried out this phrase. She looked at him and said this, I will forgive you with all my heart. And she writes that she had never known God's love so intensely as she did at that moment. But she knew one thing. It wasn't her ability to do that. wasn't her love. See, it was God's love. She recognized at that moment that the Holy Spirit had given her the power to truly love and forgive this man. See, that's what a heart of forgiving begins to do. We actually begin to experience God's love. In a fuller way, in a freer way. See, that's breaking those chains and all of a sudden the benefit is going... God, you really love me too. You have forgiven me too. We begin to understand grace in a way that we didn't get before when he gives us the power to forgive deeply. Again, I sold out these books. Um, I'm going to get some more in. But if you want to get together and talk sometime, I'm open to it as well. If you got nuances, maybe questions about your story as well. For some of you, some of you have experienced sexual abuse. And uh, one of the opportunities here is that over at the Assemblies of God, they offer a support group in the fall and the spring. It's for women. And if that might be a part of something that you've experienced and you need healing from that, I'd encourage you, I have a card out at the table that gives the, the telephone number for that, or you could call over there and, and uh, they could give you the information on it. But see, I, I think the call on us is, are we willing to start? And my, it might be just seeing the other person differently and saying, God, would you give me the ability to begin to love and see them like you see them? And then let go of the past. Reconstruct. Something better, and even celebration. Let's stand and pray.